0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Patina Gappa.
1: This idea of dying, not because of any physical ailment, but just from hopelessness, is something that really was always at the back of my mind as I wrote this novel.
0: We'll hear more from Patina Gappa in a few minutes. I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com/firstdraftwriters. That's p a t r e o n.com/firstdraftwriters. For your contribution of $6 or more a month, you will receive extras from the shows including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books and a monthly newsletter. It takes a lot of energy and love to put this show together every week, not to mention equipment, time, and electricity. Your donation helps keep this show going. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. Some of the extras you will receive this month for donating include author Alex Oline talking about how she starts novels by finding a portal where she can enter the story and what features she looks for to know if she has enough traction to continue. You will also receive a writing tip from Taya O'Brett, including the rituals she employs while composing, and much more. I can't tell you how giddy I get when a new donor joins the community. It reignites my resolve to keep reading a book a week and pursuing meaningful conversations with the authors. So thank you so much. And now I have a website. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. There's a link there to donate, an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, and the entire archive of more than 200 First Draft shows. So come visit and listen. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Bettina Gappa, author of the novels Out of Darkness, Shining Light, and the Book of Memory, and the short story collections Rotten Row and An Elegy for Easterly. Gappa is an award-winning Zimbabwean author who also worked as an international trade lawyer. She currently lives in Harare. Her novel, Out of Darkness, Shining Light, is the fictionalization of the true-life pilgrimage in 19th century Africa, when more than 70 Africans carried the dead body of the English explorer David Livingstone 1,500 miles across the continent to the sea, so his remains could be returned home to England by ship. Out of Darkness, Shining Light is narrated by two of the Africans who carried the body, Halima, Livingston's cook, and Jacob Wainwright, a freed slave who was converted to Christianity. We began the discussion with Patina Gappa, sharing how she alighted on this true story and the 21 years it took her to bring it to the page.
1: It's a story that has been in my life since I was about 10 or 11 years old. When I was a child, I used to read this Lady Bird book. I don't know if you have them in America, but in, in, in the UK and much of the Commonwealth, they were sort of a gateway to history for young readers. So there would be, you know, a Ladybird book about uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, there would be a Ladybird book about the uh, Water Rally, about Captain uh, Scott in the South Pole. And I read one about um, David Livingston. Um and I was really fascinated by by the story of the end of his life, which is that he died in Africa, and his companions who were given as Tuma and Susie carried his body for nine months to the coast and it's something that really puzzled me as a child because I didn't really much understand the historical context in which all of this had done so I sort of imagined two people carrying a body you know one carrying the shoulders one carrying the the feet and and walking with it to the coast and then when I was in secondary school when I was about sixteen, we did the history of the occupation of southern Africa and of course an important part of that history were the journeys that Livingstone made that opened up um, the, the continent to further exploitation and colonization. So I remember studying out, or rather tracing out his journeys, and I still actually have my notebook from when I was 16. And again, there was that sentence, at the end of his death, he he was surrounded by his African companions, and then when he died, Chuma and Susi carried his body to the coast so that he could be buried in England. And it was then that I really began to ask myself, what, why on earth did they do this? I mean, it's such an extraordinary thing to carry a dead body uh, across, you know, African territory. And so I became sort of obsessed with the idea of Chuma and Susi. And all this time, I really thought it was just two people. And then I thought in about 1998 that this might be a really good premise for a novel. So I started, you know, to look into it and I started to research it. But I didn't really feel confident about writing a novel of such magnitude when I had never written anything before.
0: So you were saying that you didn't, you know, that you didn't even really know how to write. You you're trained as a lawyer, so I'm sure you know how to do a certain kind of writing. So before you really tried to tackle this, there's the research side, and then there's like the craft and the writing side. What did you do on the on the on the writing side to try to prepare yourself for that? Because that can be harder than researching history is very cut and dry, but how do you learn sort of to be artistic in that way?
1: Yeah, actually, I mean, the, the whole question is bound up in my in my self-doubt um, as a writer because I, I wanted to be a writer. I didn't actually want to be a lawyer at all. I I studied law mainly because my parents and my teachers encouraged me to because you know I like to argue, I like to debate, I have a good memory, I like to read. So it seemed like the perfect thing to, to study, but I had wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. In fact, you know, like most writers, I I wanted to be a writer once I knew that there was a sort of a conscious mind behind the book that I love. And, you know, I thought, well, what about if I try to also write something? So I started writing from about the age of 11 or so. But it never actually occurred to me that I might be a writer as a profession because I didn't know any black female writers. There weren't any who were writing in English when I was growing up. In fact, the, the first woman the first Zimbabwean black woman to write a novel, only wrote it in 1988, and I only read it in 1993 when I was already at university. So, you know, I come from a young nation, everything was new, everything was was fresh. So I didn't have any examples before me of uh, black women who were doing the kind of thing that that I wanted to. And then, of course, when I then started to read more widely and I read other African authors, there just wasn't anybody who was doing the kind of writing about Zimbabwe, that I wanted to do. So I just really didn't feel that there was an appetite for the kind of thing that I wanted to write. So I became a lawyer and I you know, enjoyed studying law. I ended up with three degrees, one after the other, including a PhD at the age of 27. And then I moved to Geneva and I sort of started writing this novel. But again, I just didn't have that confidence um, that anybody would want to read this. So in the end, I ended up writing other things and then I wrote three books, and then eventually I wrote this one. Out of
0: Darkness, Shining Light, is it focuses on this nine month journey where, in 1873, 69 African workers of various um, levels of freedom and and genders and ages carried this this explorer David Livingstone's body across Africa to bring him back to England. They felt like his his bones at least should be buried there. Um, he was an explorer. He was looking for the source of the Nile. And, you know, when I started this book, I just was really faced with this question, why would they do that?
1: That's exactly the question that was at the heart of this. And this is a question that I grappled with many times because it, it really is such an extraordinary thing to do, isn't it? I mean, they could easily have just buried him where he fell. And in fact, uh, I found this lovely passage in one of his journals that I end the book with, you know, where he said, um, we came to a grave in the forest, and in such a grave would I like to lie, you know? So, in a sense, they even acted against his own, you know, deeply felt wishes, that he wanted to be buried wherever he fell. So the question of why is really what drove me to to write this novel, because it was such a, a perplexing thing for them to have done. And I think I found five answers. I don't know if you you've read the book, I don't know whether you you see the same five answers that I found. The key to the solution, at least the key to the solution for me as to why they did it, came in that there are many different characters that had many different motives. Once I had worked out that it wasn't just Chuma and Susie who carried the body, just the two of them, once I had worked out that there were more than 70, in fact, there were more than 70 people in the party. And I only say 69 because (laughs) I only managed to find the names of 69 people. but once I'd worked out that there was this basically this village that was traveling with him, it then became very easy to imagine that each group of people or each person might have had different motives, you know, no group, things alike. There wasn't like a hive mind. So what I then did was to extract different motives depending on each individual's relationship to David Livingston and also to the other companions. So one of the motivations was fear, fear that they would be suspected of killing this white man if they returned to Zanzibar without his body, so they needed to bring his body with them as proof that they hadn't done him any harm. The second sort of fear that I that I thought might be might have been a motive was fear of his spirit if they you know laid him to rest in a place that was strange to him. So they wanted him gone. They wanted him to be mourned by his people, to be visited by his children. So there was that as well. And then there was also the possibility that they might be rewarded for bringing uh, this this body back and most importantly for bringing the papers back. So the body and the papers together might fetch a great reward and uh, people in England would be thankful and reward them for for their service. Then there was a fourth reason, I think, for some of them, which was hatred. They wanted this white man off the land, because they didn't want any strangers on the land. And it's a little bit related to the fear of his spirit. But this was a fear of Livingston himself or hatred of Livingston himself. And then the final reason, I think, was love. And I think for some of the companions, especially uh, the youngest of them, Majwara, who was a very young boy when he was rescued by Livingston, I think he felt a real a real love for for his master. And he, he wanted Livingston buried to get you know in in his own country and to be mourned by his love loved ones, so I think those are the five reasons that i that i that i decided um were the motivation for for the extraordinary act of um of service the The plaque at at Westminster Abbey talks about the last reason um love but they call it loyalty they say that um he was brought over land and sea by faithful hands so it, the that act of carrying his body really played into this sentimental Victorian idea of Livingstone as this sainted person who was so beloved by the Africans that they carried his body in an act of great and loyal sacrifice you know so it it, it really was something that burnished the the myth of Livingstone and in fact in, in the prologue the chorus of the companions says our uh, you know our final act of service served to burnish um, his 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 uh, his reputation and his life for who but a saint could could have inspired such a service. So um, I also played a little bit with that notion, uh, the Victorian notion of the faithful servant, the loyal servant, and so on.
0: One of the things you mentioned earlier, and and then we'll talk about some of the characters, is is kind of this idea of maybe superstition, and and that came up a lot, like basically like that maybe he would haunt haunt them, maybe he would haunt the land, they wanted the white men out of that land. So that was a theme that I saw come up a lot in, in the book of sort of superstitions and ghosts and shaitani, which are evil spirits and witch doctors, <laughs> versus religion and Western thinking. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, great pronunciation of shaitani, by the way. Um, excellent. <laughs> you should learn, you should learn Swahili. Uh, this is a, a pre-Christian world, right? This is a pre-Christian Africa. And, in fact, the Christianized uh, companions like uh, Jacob Wainwright and the other boys from this Nasdaq school in India have been Christianized in India, right? And, in fact, David Livingston himself, his, one of his missions, he wanted to Christianize Africa. He wanted to, to have missionaries working to turn you know, the, uh, Africans to, to, to Jesus. And so the, the world of the, of the spirits, the world of um, ghosts and so on, is part of African cosmology. It's part of how Africans saw the world uh, before Christianity. And I don't consider it really to be superstition or to be primitive in any way. It's just It was just a different way of understanding the world. In fact, I compare it to how um, the Greeks saw the world, you know, with, with their different Greek gods who acted very much like human beings. You know, they were lustful and vengeful. You know, uh, they went to war and they made peace, they had battles and so on. So it, it, it's a very uh, pre-modern, if you like, it's a pre-modern understanding of how the world works. So I try not to to judge it as um, superstitious or inferior or lesser, because it simply was. It's what it was, you know. So this was an Africa that was uh, pre-Christian. The Islam was very much a part of uh, people's lives, especially on the coast. But the Africans themselves, like Halima's mother in the novel, had their own beliefs. And uh, for Halima's mother's people, um, as, a, as a, for Chirango's people as well, it was all about the ancestors, what the ancestors think, um, what whether the ancestors would be angry about a white man being on the land and so on.
0: In the novel, we, we read some from David Livingston's journals, but we don't really see him as an active, alive, speaking character. Do you want to talk about
1: that? Yes, thank you so much. I mean, that was um, a deliberate choice on my part. He's already talked so much, and so much has been said of him. And I just wanted to foreground his companions, you know, the silent people, the subalterns, the people who whom we've never heard from. So I wanted to put them front and center, and I wanted... For the first time, for David Livingston to be silent. So he only appears in memory. He appears in the memories of his companions when they talk about his last, uh, his last evening before he died, when they talk about, when they remember some of the things that he used to say. But as soon as the novel begins, David Livingston is dead. And so it was a deliberate choice. I was very much inspired by the idea of the protagonist who, is, who doesn't really matter. As as a character, but he matters to the action. And in that in that sense, my one of my biggest inspirations uh, was Julius Caesar, the Shakespearean play, where Caesar appears um, all too briefly, and within less than a third of the of the play, he's dead, and the rest, you know, is all about you know the aftermath of his death. So he's a protagonist who matters hugely to the action, but in himself as a character, he's not that important. And that's the kind of character I wanted David Livingston to be.
0: The two main voices that you chose for this story were uh, a male and a female, so Halima and Jacob Wainwright. And Halima was bought by David Livingston to be the wife of Amoda, one of the men who was in in the expedition, and she was also the cook. And Jacob Wainwright was one of these um, young men from the Nasik school who was um, almost bought into slavery in Africa got rescued on a boat and went to India and learned Christianity and came back to kind of convert and proselytized. And he had more of a, a Western mindset and he was um, on the expedition. So mostly the, the first part of the book is from Halima's point of view. And the second part is from Jacob, although not exclusively Let's first talk about Halima and who she was, who she was born to, and sort of her role in the expedition and her voice in the book, what you wanted her to, to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, Halima was an absolutely delightful find because until I came across Halima in David Livingston's own journal, I had assumed that the companions were all men. Because that's all you learn about, you know, David Livingston and his companions, Chuma and Susie, and so on. Occasionally, Jacob Wainwright is mentioned. Um, but until I read very closely Livingston's journals, I didn't realize that women were part of Victorian exploration in Africa. What happened is that they would spend, you know, a lot of time just waiting or resting at different villages and places. And then people would attach themselves to the party. And of course, the men got restless and they, you know, they they had women that they traveled with and so on. So this to me was a really extraordinary um, find that opened me up to a different way of telling the story. And what was really interesting is that David Livingston was a prolific writer. I mean, not only did he write three extremely long uh, books based on his journals, but he also wrote a lot of letters, and I I had a wonderful two weeks of looking at some of his letters in the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh. And in his letters and in his journals, he talked a lot about his companions. And of Halima, he said, oh, goodness, this woman has an outrageous tongue, you know? And it was also very interesting to me that um, Henry Morton Stanley, the American who famously found Livingston when he had been lost, he also talks about Halima's, um, you know, and he talks about the ferocious volume of her, of her talking, reaching to them from the kitchen, you know. And Livingston had very weak teeth by the end of his life. And he talks about how Halima made him a particular type of cake that was very soft, a particular type of bread that was very soft, and how she made her own butter, you know. So she, she churned butter uh, for him to eat with, with his cakes. So once I learned that David Livingston's cook had been a woman called Halima, I started to look for uh, the real Halima uh, in, in the history books. And I found her in, in Livingston's uh, books in, in Stanley, and also in some um, narrations that, that were given by some of the companions long after they had you know, carried the body of Livingston. So Halima kept popping up again. And then I thought, wouldn't it be terrific to narrate this very male story about travel and exploration and danger, partly in the voice of a woman? So that was really what led me to imagine Halima as as, as a woman, as, as as a voice in in the novel. And in fact, initially, I had more than one woman narrating the novel. I had Kaweike as well, who's a a very flighty person, um, and I also had Misozi, who's a friend of Halima's. She was also narrating the uh, the novel because, in fact, the first uh, iteration of this novel, the first version I had, was based on uh, Faulkner. As I lay dying, you know, I told that story of the companions um, in about 13 or 14 voices, including Livingston's own voice. But I had a really hard time distinguishing some of the, especially the male voices, from each other. And I also wanted some of the voices to be more mysterious, right? So to be talked about rather than to be narrated themselves. So in the end, I decided to stick just with Halima and with uh, Jacob Wainwright.
0: I would say Halima... She was an interesting mixture of she was smart, she would speak up, but she also had given her status that she was bought to be someone's wife and was, you know, really curious to and and, and interested in becoming free but also had that, you know, she's been persecuted as a woman in her place in society for a long time. So I found that her character a lot straddled these two kind of worlds, one where she did have some agency and could speak up and offer something of value to the expedition, and then the other side where sometimes you saw her inner thoughts and you knew how desperately she wanted something different and was in love with someone other than her husband but couldn't attain that.
1: Is is a slave? At least she sees herself as a slave because David Livingstone bought her from the Arab merchant um, who was her owner, right? But what she doesn't understand, and this becomes clear as the novel progresses, what she doesn't understand is that David Livingstone's purchase of her was an act of manumission, right? It was an act of freeing her. But she she is so into this idea. That she is a slave. That she doesn't actually realize that the minute David Livingston paid for her, he had freed her. So throughout the novel, she keeps worrying about. Okay, so maybe I'm free not that he's dead, but oh, oh, his son is coming, so he'll probably claim me as well. And of course, she's the kind of slave who was um, used by her masters for sexual purposes. You know, so she immediately thinks, oh gosh, you know, now I'll have to have another master who wants to sleep with me and so on. You know, uh, who may want to have children with me and so on. So that's the kind of world that she inhabits, the world where people are bought and sold. You can be transferred from one master to the other. It's perfectly normal in her world that this can happen. So this idea that th- this buying by David Livingston was actually a kind of freeing is completely radical, and so radical that she it, it really takes another freed slave, Jacob Wainwright, to actually break it down for her to explain it. But at the same time, even though Halima is enslaved, she's a slave, she's actually one of the most free characters in the book. Whereas Jacob Wainwright, and I'm sure you're going to have questions about him, he is a freed man, but he's also one of the most enslaved characters in the book. So I really wanted to contrast those two characters in terms of what does it mean to be free?
0: Let's talk about Jacob Wainwright. He was a, a freed Slave who got educated, he was um, basically came back as a missionary. He was very devoted to Christianity. He didn't quite yet have like his cleric's collar yet, and it was something he was aspiring to. But his voice and his narration, everything was kind of seen through the 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 guise of him being Christian. And I found it so interesting to see him be critical of some of the some of the African ways like some of the superstitions and some of the ghosts and the shaitanis that we were talking about earlier that he sort of has quote seen the way so it's i i always think it's uh interesting to see a character who is of those people as opposed to a white missionary who's come from abroad and he 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 kind of had this very um very certain voice of how things should be and yet, he kept brushing against how things actually were.
1: Absolute Oh, that's so nicely put. That's so nicely put. I'm so glad I managed to convey that. Okay, so again, uh, he's another person who's rooted in reality. And in fact, he's, um, you know, it, together with Chuma and Susi, he's one of the more well-known companions. And his history is a very interesting one, because I learned that after the British had banned slavery, the trade of trade slavery, um, they sent gunboats to patrol the West African and the East African coast to make sure that parties of slaves were not transported from Africa, right? And one of the people that they rescued was this young boy called Jacob Wainwright. Now, what would happen is that the slaves would, would be rescued maybe on the high seas. And then the question is, what do you do with the rescued slaves? They couldn't be taken back home. I think for many of them, they didn't even know where home was, you know. Many had come from the interior. Some had come, you know, from up and down the coast. So to locate them in their villages was was difficult. So what they did, especially with the younger boys, was that they took them to India. And there they established a school called the Nasik School, where they taught these young boys to, to read and write. They taught them trades like carpentry, shipbuilding, map reading, And then, later on, when the different Victorian explorers passed through India to go to Africa, they would pick up some of these boys, because now these boys not only could speak English and write and draw maps and so on, but they also knew their original African tongue. So they were very helpful companions as these uh, explorers went back back into Africa. So Jacob Wainwright was one such young man who had been rescued as a slave, taken to India and educated, and then came back with what was called the Livingston um, Relief Expedition to rescue Livingston, right? But in the end, he ended up joining Stanley, finding Livingston, and then staying on. So I used his voice because he's one of the last companions to um, to join the group. And he was also the most educated of the companions. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if Jacob Wainwright's real journal that he actually wrote was reimagined by me? as the second part of the novel.
0: I'm wondering what you th- think of him. And I guess partly because he is a real person, maybe you can be have more distance than if it was a, purely a character that you made um, out of your mind. But I, I just found him to be such an interesting presence, both because he was a freed slave and was basically coming back to convert people to Christianity, his people, where that mindset was nowhere in the way that they lived for, you know, generations and generations and thousands of years. Mm. And then his own pain because of it and his own areas where he could maybe flinch the rules for something that he liked, like a woman.
1: Yeah, he's a mess of hypocrisies. I mean, like a lot of um, people who want to save others, he is a mess of hypocrisies and doesn't always, Know no way he himself should be saved and where he should focus his own saving zeal on himself, you know. So I wanted to create a character who who was at conflict who, and who was in a state of conflict. And Jacob Wainwright is in a perpetual state of conflict. On the surface is, is a very confident, very assured um, man who knows exactly what his place is in the world. But as you said earlier, and you said very well, that it's 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 a contradiction of reality, uh, you know, uh, reality and what is imagined with him because he has a very strong imagination of what the world should look like, but what the world looks like is completely different. So even he himself, his own feelings, his own instincts, are at war with the Jacob Wainwright that he wants to that he wants to portray himself as. So he falls in love with a woman. And, of course, you know, being in love with a woman as a strong Christian of that time, he can't allow himself to, to give in to that. But it's a it's a, it's a passion that eventually leads him to, to act extremely hypocritically and to try and justify his hypocrisy by saying, oh, well, then, you know, I'm going to marry her and she's going to become a Christian and, and all the rest of it. So he kind of is constantly reinventing uh, his story to match the reality in which he finds himself in. But more than more than more than the love uh, story, which is a thread that that runs through the novel, I found I found it really um, sad to imagine a character who was so, you know, caught up in, in this idea of Christianity, who had drunk the Kool Aid really. He had drunk the Kool Aid of Christianity, only to go to England and find that no, actually, he will never be considered equal to any of these guys. They will never give him a a mission. They will never give him a church to run. He will never be able to Christianize people in the way that he wanted to because he's, he's a black man in, in 1870, you know, 1875, 6 or whatever. And he's just not considered an equal to the people or rather by the people that he wants to serve.
0: A lot of the book for me was that we have to live in this middle ground that no one is purely good and no one is purely evil. You know, a lot of that was David Livingston himself, but he did these great things. He bought freedom for his slaves. He also had pretty entrenched relationships with slave traders. He beat Chirango, and then at the same time, he was trying to do good things for them. And can you talk about this idea of living with this duality and and maybe some of the greater meaning of that in your your novel?
1: My president, uh, my first president, Robert Mugabe, died just... uh just a week ago and I was I was reading all, all his accolades because I also wrote something about him. So I wanted to read what other people had said. So I was reading all these accolades. And what was really extraordinary is that they could have been talking about two different people. You know, in one view he was this hero, he had rescued his people, he had freed his people, he had given his people land, and yet in another view he was this, you know, this this absolute monster, this villain. he, he had slaughtered thousands of his people he had isolated his country. And yet they were all talking about the same person. And and by the way, all these things were true of this one person. And it struck me really, um, again, as it has always struck me as a writer, that what makes human beings so extraordinary to write about is this good and bad that lives in all of us. We, ha- we have this incredible mix of what is good and bad. And in fact, I really came to warm to David Livingston As a character, both, and as a person, as a historical person, when I read something he wrote in his journal, which was to say, I have often wondered about the character of the African. After much reflection, I can only conclude that he's as much a mix of good and bad as are all of us. Now, this seems like such a a normal thing to say, but considering that he was writing it in 18-something, and he was writing to an audience that considered Africans to be savages, that needed to be rescued. It it was an extraordinary recognition of his fellow brother's humanity. And I think it could only have been written by somebody who himself had that conflicting uh, duality, who had that humanity of being both good and evil. As you say, you know, uh, he would, in his travels, meet um, slaves and he would have great pity and write, you know, wonderfully and, you know, with great emotion about the horrors of the slave trade. But at the same time, he also, had to be rescued by Tipu Tip and Kumbakumba uh, Kumba and some of the other slave traders who were operating in the area at the time. And there was one time when they actually basically saved his life. So he had this conflict uh, as well in his own life in terms of how he dealt with slavery.
0: Well, my favorite line in the book in this conversation is sort of getting us there. This isn't word for word, but at one point you write... The strangest disease in this country is brokenheartedness.
1: Yeah, I really like that that idea. And especially, again, you know, in my research, I discovered that Bagamoyo, which is this um, coastal town to which they carried Livingston's body, not only means to lay down your burden, it also means the cracking of the heart. And this is because um, when slaves got to Bagamoyo, and, you know, they had walk from the interior, walked for miles, carrying ivory tusks and other, you know, burdens on their on their heads and in their shoulders. They got to the coast, to Bagamoyo, and they realized that, no, the journey was not over. There was still a, a, a sea journey to be made to get over the, to, to Zanzibar, where they would then be taken to the market and, and sold. And the legends around slavery in East Africa are that some of the slaves, their hearts would crack and, and would break, and they would just fall, you know, Uh, uh, and die from their misery. And this idea of dying, not because of any physical ailment, but just from hopelessness, is something that really um, was always at the back of my mind as I wrote this novel.
0: I found that one of the ideas of this was that it's important where you're buried, at least in this expedition. And I'm wondering if that's important to you.
1: You know, I'm an atheist, so I... I don't really have a particular, a particularly strong feeling about how I should be buried, but because I'm an atheist, I think I, I and, and I don't really take a religious view of my death. I'm able to imagine it uh, in a way that you know uh, people who might be more religious are not able to. So I have I have a will. I have laid out my <laughs> my funeral plans and all the rest of it. Ideally, I want to be cremated, but I know there will be holy hell in my family over that because no one has been, ever been cremated in my in my family and um, uh, so the way I want to be buried is whatever is easiest for the people I leave behind. I mean, if they have a Catholic mass for me, I don't mind. I won't be there <laughs> to care about it. So I, I, I think that I would want my, my death to be, uh, at least my funeral, to be as least troublesome as possible. And with that, with that...
0: Um, line that I, I mentioned earlier about the, the strangest disease in this country is broken heartedness you know you were writing that in reference to 1873 what do you think about that today?
1: I don't know that broken heartedness is, is how I would use to characterize um, our lives today whether in the US or um, in, in Africa or in Europe but I think there's certainly a, a sort of a resignedness to the way that we are now viewing the world um you know it is people who care about ideas people who care about certain values i think we are we are becoming more and more resigned to the inevitability that um certain forces are, are likely to lead us in a, in a in a direction that we don't want to be in so there's a kind of a broken-heartedness if you like about the state of the world um racism anti-immigration sentiment And just a a lack of care and compassion in how we we, we talk about each other and and in how we treat each other.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: I am in New York, um, and I don't have a lot of my books with me. Um, So I I would have loved to read from Margaret Atwood or from Toni Morrison or from Ian McEwan or any of the other writers that I admire who write with what I call music. In, in their writing. Oh, and Kazuo Ishiguro is one of my, favorites, my favorite authors. But I have in front of me a book that was a hugely influential source uh, for this novel, and that's the King, King James Version of the Bible. Because I love, I love the Bible. I'm an atheist, but I love the Bible. I love to read, especially the King James Version, for its beauty, its cadence, and its music. So I want to read a few lines from the Book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God, and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep, and three thousand camels, and five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, and that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect in an upright man, one that feareth God and is true as evil.
0: Do you want to say anything else about that passage?
1: I love the rhythm of it. I love the specificity of all the things that Job possessed, you know, the 7,000 sheep, the 3,000 camels. And, and I love the very odd relationship that is imagined between God and Satan. They have these, you know, chatty conversations. Dude, what have you been up to? Oh, I've just been walking up and down. So to me, there's some humor as well. And, and I love this idea of a man who was put to, to, to a great test and was, um, was tested for his faith and his loyalty. Um, loyalty and faith are two of the things that I, that I like to write about. So the book of Job is really one of my favorite passages in the Bible.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yes, I will read from the prologue of this novel and talk a little bit about why that was difficult and how that changed. This is how we carried out of Africa the poor, broken body of Wana Daudi, the doctor, David Livingstone, so that he could be born across the sea and buried in his own land. For more than 1,500 miles from the interior to the eastern coast, we marched with his body, from Chitambo to Wanamuzungu, from Chisalamala to Kumbakumba, from Lambanansipa to Tabora, until 285 days after we left Chitambo. We reached Bagamoyo, that place of sorrow, whose very name means to lay to rest the burden of your heart. We set him down in the hushed peace of the church, and all through that long night prayed and sang and keened the 700 manumitted slaves from the village of the free. After the tide came in the following day, they lined up on either side of the path that led to the dhow of his final crossing. And we watched until the white sail of that rickety wooden boat was a small dark triangle on the far horizon and all that we could see of him was the sky meeting the shimmering sea. I'm sure you could maybe tell the the rhythm of those sentences is very similar to the passage that I've that I've read. You know, the specificity, the and and the and and the and so I wanted to have this very grand sort of like sounding chorus. Um but I had a I had a little bit of a struggle with, um, you know, this the, how to name the towns and where to name the towns and how to give this impression of a party of people moving and, you know, to use the first-person plural as, a, as the opening of the novel. I mean, it, it's something that I debated uh, long and hard, also with my editors, about just how effective that voice was. But I felt very strongly that it had to be in that voice of the chorus and in fact the chorus was supposed to come up and up and up again but there were points at which it became very artificial so the compromise in the end was that we would stick to the, um, to the prologue so the chorus would just be in the prologue and then the, epi- you know, in the, the epilogue would be all these different things uh, from David Livingston's um, burial, burial places.
0: Where do you write?
1: I have a I have an office. I currently live in Harare in Zimbabwe, and I've been very fortunate that in every city I've lived in, whether it's Geneva or Berlin or Harare, I always have a separate office in in which to write. So I write mainly from my desk, um, which is a very beautiful, uh, partner's desk from the nineteen twenties or something like that. It's a it's a beautiful mahogany and leather desk, and and that's where I tend to write. But because I also travel a lot, I basically write wherever I, I find myself, in whatever city in the world, I find myself.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I read. I travel. I, I hang out with my son, Kushinga, who's his son and is 15. And I spend a lot of time with my family and friends, and I cook. Um, I also collect art. <laughs> so I have, I have many things that can uh, help me to get away from writing when I need to.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have three family members who are usually my first readers, and then they give me the what I call the emotional response, and then I go on to my, my professional team, uh, who then gives me what I call the professional response.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I've been really lucky to have experienced very little rejection, and that was really in the early years when I was starting out in my writing, um, and I used... The rejection that I got then to, to to really strive to be a better writer and and to work harder and to keep submitting. My favorite rejection story is from the New Yorker. Um, they wrote me a a very nice handwritten rejection which I kept on my fridge for years. And when I finally got uh, accepted into New Yorker ten years after they rejected me, it was really the most wonderful feeling.
0: And what is your favorite word? <laughs>
1: My favorite word is a word that um, does not exist in the English language as expressed in the Shorter Oxford Dictionary, and that's the word Nicodemus. It's, um, it's, an, it's a Zimbabwean English word to, that means to do something surreptitiously or secretly, and it comes from the story of the Pharisee called Nicodemus who went to Jesus at night to ask how a man could be born again. So it appears in sentences such as, um, he acted Nicodemously or uh, these are Nicodemus machinations that cannot be accepted, you know. So it's, <laughs> it's one of my favorite words because it shows um, that even those people to whom uh, languages are imposed can also play with it and, you know, contribute to it in different ways.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing this conversation with me.
1: Well, oh, thank you so much. This this is really interesting, and um, it's my first um, conversation about my new book in in the US. So I'm very, I'm very, I'm very happy that it was with you.
0: You've been listening to First Draft: a dialogue on writing. My guest was Bettina Gappa, author of Out of Darkness, Shining Light. And if you liked today's show, check out my interview with Nicole dennis Ben, who writes about three women dealing with family issues, their role in Jamaican society, and the threat of developers forcing them to move from their home to make way for an upscale resort. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating the first draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, and writing tips from my guests. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. One of the extras you will receive from this interview with Patina Gappa is a writing tip that she shared that relates to time spent on the draft. She took 21 years to write the novel she talked about on this show. There will be additional cuts and writing tips from other interviews running this month, so please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Coming up on the next episode, Terry Tempest-Williams discussing wilderness, politics, and spirituality, and her essay collection, Erosion. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, your host and producer. Thank you for listening.